you know, it's customary when you're the guest preacher to thank people for letting you preach, and thank you for the privilege of preaching, but also thank you for all of you who uh, have brought us meals during the time of Catherine's sickness and cared and watched uh, over my children, because if, um, if you didn't do that, then the sermon tonight would be closer to the babble that Paul deplores rather than the sound doctrine that he exhorts the church to have. So let's look together at uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6. I think it's on page 993 in the Black Pew Bible in front of you. It's 1 Timothy chapter 6. I'll be doing something that I don't think I've ever done before. I'll, be, I'll start with the second half of verse 2, because if you, if you look in the Pew Bible, they group the second half of uh, verse 2, teach and urge these things, with the rest of the uh, passage. So I'll be reading... First uh, Timothy chapter 6, the end of verse 2, that last sentence of verse 2, all the way to verse 10. First Timothy chapter 6. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Well, let's ask the Lord to help us as we examine this passage together. Let's pray. High King of Heaven, we long to know the sound words, to agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. We do not want to see anyone wander away from the faith and pierce him or herself with many pangs. On the contrary, we want to taste and see the Lord is good, to know that there is great gain in godliness with contentment. And so, Lord Jesus, by your Holy Spirit, work in our hearts, transform our thinking and our wicked thoughts and desires to the praise of your glorious grace. Amen. Amen. Well, Marcus Licinius Crassus, who died in 53 BC, was considered rich in the Apostle Paul's day, so about a century later. Some Romans, some contemporary Romans, placed his net worth as equivalent to the annual budget of the entire Roman Empire. To put things in perspective, the United States government apparently spent 
almost $4 trillion last year. You'd have a lot of money if you had $4 trillion. I mean, I'm not an economist, but I'm just thinking that's the case. Now, more modern estimates think that, uh, in contrast to $4 trillion, Crassus was a mere pauper with perhaps $200 million to $20 billion. Either way, that's quite a fortune. When Paul talks about money, or later in this chapter, when he addresses rich people specifically, we should know that the ancient world knew what real tremendous wealth was like. Very, very few people had it, of course, and I'm pleased to note that uh, even Crassus himself didn't have a dishwasher or air conditioning. But these people knew what real wealth was, what astonishing wealth was. But let's be clear. The focus of this passage is not money. Instead, Paul expresses his concern right at the start, right there at verse 3. It's false teaching. Those who teach a different doctrine and don't agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus. Paul actually uses the words there, that uses the word there in verse 3, teaches a different doctrine, that he uses right at the very start of the letter in chapter 1, verse 3. And we've seen, haven't we, that Paul again and again expresses concern over false teachers. In chapter 1, they're the ones who promote speculations about myths and genealogy and talk about the law without understanding. In chapter 4, Paul warns Timothy about false teachers who will encourage people to abstain from certain foods and forbid marriage. And now in chapter 6, Paul is again telling Timothy to beware of false teachers. He's telling Timothy what they teach, what they do, and who they are. And in a nutshell, these false teachers are swerving from the faith, and they're destroying the church. Now, why does Paul take time to talk about the teachers themselves? I found one commentator I found very helpful. He said, behind the opponent's facade, their supposed intellectualism and false piety is their real motivation for their ministry. They want to make money. They think that ministry pays and that it pays very well. And let's be honest. Ministry does pay, or at least it should. Paul says so in this letter, right? In, in the last chapter, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, Paul says that good, faithful, gospel preachers deserve both honor and pay. Nevertheless, good ministers don't preach for honor. They don't preach for pay. Instead, they preach Christ, and their focus is his glory. When the Apostle Paul is defending his own ministry in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, 
but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Paul's point? It's not about Paul. It's about Christ. So this passage, though it ends with an extended meditation on the perils of money, begins with, and I think is consumed by, an exhortation to Timothy to be a faithful gospel teacher in the face of false teachers who are in it for a buck. Now we'll consider this passage from the the second half of verse 2 all the way to, to verse 10 under four headings. There are four headings. We'll look at the content of preaching, its impact on the community, what kind of character is promoted by the ministry, and finally, the consequences. And I want, to, I want us to balance our assessment. We're not just going to think about false teachers. We're going to also think about good teachers. We're going to do that because that's what Paul does. And so we'll follow his lead. So our, our four headings again are content, community, character, and consequences. First, content. Content. Good teachers teach the Bible. But bad teachers offer their people a different doctrine, verse 3. One does does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. Now, Paul's expression in chapter 6, the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, could mean any number of different things. I think most likely it either means Paul's words about the Lord Jesus, or it could be an indication that they already have a written gospel, perhaps the gospel of Mark, in their hands. But either way, notice what the false teachers are rejecting. They're rejecting some part of what is now in our New Testament. Now, if they're not trusting the Bible, where are they getting their ideas? Well, Paul is clear. False teachers spew forth whatever gibberish happens to come into their depraved minds. We see this in verse 5. They have depraved minds and they're deprived of the truth, and yet they keep on talking. And earlier in the chapter, uh, sorry, in chapter 2, earlier in 1 Timothy, when Paul is talking about the truth, he identifies the truth with saving faith and knowledge of the Lord Jesus, the one mediator between God and man. And so that's a big truth to set aside. Now, we live in an easygoing age theologically, right? We're, we're pretty easygoing about what people believe, not just about Bible, but about everything. But Paul wasn't so careless as we are about his defense of Christian teaching. One commentator notes that different doctrine for Paul is deviant doctrine. Different doctrine is deviant doctrine. It's not someone's privately held opinion. It's a departure from the faith. Now this August marks the 10th anniversary. It's amazing it's been 10 years. It marks the 10th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina, a devastating storm that changed forever the lives of many along 
the Gulf Coast, especially southern uh, Mississippi and most notably, of course, New Orleans. Well, imagine that there you are in New Orleans and your home was devastated by Katrina. You lost everything except a copy of your home insurance contract. You file a claim, and through your tears, you begin to think about rebuilding your home. But then you receive word from the insurance agent that your insurance company is upholding a different doctrine, one that does not agree with the sound words of your home insurance contract or the teaching that accords with your homeowner's policy. How would you respond? You wouldn't shrug your shoulders. You wouldn't be indifferent. You'd say that the insurance agent was puffed up with conceit and understood nothing. You'd marvel at the insurance company's unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. Well, similarly, we may think that somebody's theological musings, apart from the Bible, are a novel curiosity. But what we call an interesting idea, Paul calls heresy. Just as an aside, I find this deeply convicting as I'm a philosopher. And so most of what people talk about at conferences is stuff from their heads. And it's deeply convicting for me personally to think that I need to be more zealous for the gospel. That these are not idle speculations. People are puffed up with conceit, verse 4. They understand nothing. And these are harsh words. But they are harsh words only if the gospel is unimportant. If the gospel isn't important, then such frenzied zeal is misplaced. It's like getting really angry about the color of somebody else's car. Who cares? Why make a fuss? But if you think the gospel is your life, and friends, the gospel is your life, then teaching something different isn't a teacher's prerogative. Instead, it's a damnable, curse-worthy offense. Now, by contrast to false teachers, good teachers are faithful to the sound words of Jesus and the teaching that accords with godliness. Good teachers, verse 2b, teach and urge these things. That's what Paul tells Timothy to do, teach and urge these things. Well, what in the world is he talking about? Firstly, I think he's referring back to what we just heard last week and in preceding weeks, to honor people. Chapter 5 and uh, the, first, the opening verses of chapter 6. Honor widows, chapter 5, verse 3. Elders, chapter 5, verse 17. Even slave masters, chapter 6, verse 1. Now, second, though, it's interesting because this expression occurs previously in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. It should be on the other side of the page. Command and teach these things. And I think, I don't want to read too much into it, but I think it's significant. 
I think Paul's offering a more general approach to disagreement. In the face of the pompous ignoramus, verse 4 of chapter 6, who has an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words, Timothy should stick to the truth. He should preach the gospel. Uh, Later in chapter 6 and verse 20, Paul will say, Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Avoid the babble. Stick to the Bible. So Redeemer Presbyterian Church, in the face of someone who wants to joust verbally with you about obscure philosophical musings, sometimes the biggest disservice that you can do to yourself and to that person is to neglect the teaching of the gospel and focus on whatever foolish topic of conversation is proposed. Let's be a church that says, well, may I tell you what I believe about more generally before we consider this specific topic? Put another way, may I teach you the gospel first before we talk about this one issue? Let's get the content right. Let's stick to the Bible and not to babble. That's our first point. Second, community. One obvious test for false teachers is the content of his message. Another test is what it does to the community. False teaching breeds strife and disunity in the church, not love and unity. Uh, One commentator notes that Paul uh, may have criticized their lifestyles and what they're doing in part because their teaching is so incoherent. And when when your opponents are incoherent, when they just babble on, it's good to have other things to look for apart from what they're just saying. And the havoc these people bring to a Christian community is a mark of them being a false teacher. So look down at verse 4. What do these uh, false teachers produce? Envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, verse 5, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Notice that there's a progression here. You envy someone. You're jealous. That promotes dissension, which is a minor conflict, but it erupts into slander because you're talking about the person that you envy, right? Then it's on to evil suspicions because you think the people that you're talking to should side with you rather than the person who's your opponent. With the result, what? That the church, which should be, in some sense, a harbor, a refuge from the world, is just as bad, or perhaps even worse. Now, Timothy may be a timid man. It depends on how you read 2 Timothy 1.7. If if Paul is writing in 2 Timothy chapter 7 to Timothy directly, then uh, Timothy may be timid because... There, Paul says, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And if Timothy is a timid man, then he may just hope that a false teacher will, will go away or have only a marginal influence. But Paul implicitly instructs Timothy here that the false teacher, that the problem isn't just going to go away if you ignore it. It'll destroy the church. Now, it'll do worse than that, as we'll see in a moment, 
But false teaching at least destroys a community. So content, it's Bible versus Babel, and community, it's unity or division. Third, there's character. What kind of character does false teaching promote? Well, there's a clear distinction between contentment on the one hand and covetousness on the other. We see contentment in verses 6 and 8 and covetousness in verses 9 and 10. False teachers imagine, verse 5, that godliness is a means of gain. And Paul is warning Timothy, Timothy, don't be mistaken. False teachers don't have good motives. How could they? They're not teaching the gospel for the gospel because they don't teach the gospel. Verse 3, they teach a different doctrine. And they are deprived of the truth, verse 5. Instead, they're in it for a buck. Now, I'm not going to scandalize you by telling you that there are people like this today who teach some kind of message that sounds marginally Christian, and they do it for the money. But it's important for us to remember that this phenomenon is not new. It's not a peculiarly American phenomenon. Though we may be good at breeding this kind of false teacher in America, it was an issue in Paul's own day. As one commentator notes, Paul found himself, Paul himself found it necessary to declare that, unlike many, he didn't peddle the word of God for profit, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, that he never coveted anybody's silver, gold, or clothing, Acts chapter 20, and that he never used religion as a cloak for greed. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And here, Paul is saying, watch out for the covetous. And he contrasts uh, the covetousness with godliness with contentment. Verse 6, it is great gain. The gospel does, in fact, pay. It pays well. Just not in the way the false teachers think. They promote a character of covetousness, but good teachers, by preaching the Bible, promote contentment. Verse 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. Verse 8, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Now, the word here for clothing just means covering. So it could actually extend to anything that covers you, from clothing to your house or a, you know, some kind of shelter. But notice that Paul here is not saying that we should live some kind of ultra-minimalist lifestyle. We'd misunderstand Paul if we thought that we couldn't own automobiles or even pencils because they're not included in the rubric of food and clothing. Instead, we know that God wants us richly to enjoy the many blessings of this life. In fact, uh, Paul uses that very language later in chapter 6 and verse 17. God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. But we must be careful as we enjoy the blessings of God and as we labor, as we, as we work to uh, provide for ourselves or if, if we have a family or families, that we don't become consumed with getting just a little more. Arthur Schopenhauer remarked that riches are like seawater. The more you drink, the thirstier you become. 
And Paul tells Timothy, don't drink seawater. He reminds him of what his Savior and ours taught, namely that a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. That's why verse 10, Paul says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Now let me offer some quick points here on this one verse. Notice that it's the love of money, not money itself. It's a root of evil, not just the only one. And it's not a root of all evil, but of many various kinds of evil. And Paul focuses on two in verse 10, wandering away from the faith and piercing themselves with many pangs. Now, I think it's fair to say that no one in this building is immune from this struggle. Uh, a report several years ago, a study several years ago, reported that 85% of Americans, 85% of, Amer of Americans want to be in the top 18% of American households. And only 15% of us want to end up in the middle class. Think about that for a moment. The vast majority of us don't want to end up where we are, where we will be, or in fact may never be, because we'll earn less than a middle class income. And godly preaching, teaching that accords with the sound words of our Lord Jesus, encourages contentment with where God in his goodness has placed us and it doesn't encourage covetousness, which is already in the heart, wanting a little bit more. Contentment and not covetousness. That's the character godly preaching promotes. And finally, we need to think about the consequences of true and false teaching. The consequences of the instruction. Does a, te does a teacher preach deliverance? in Christ Jesus, or does he lead a congregation on the primrose path to destruction? So what are the consequences of teaching? Deliverance or destruction? Godliness with contentment is great gain, verse 6. Because, verse 7, we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. Or as Job said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. This is true, isn't it? John Stott tells the story of a minister who was asked how much a wealthy woman had left at her death. His response was straightforward, simple, and sobering. She left everything. She left everything. There are no pockets in a shroud. Yet from this reflection on death and nothingness, Paul can somehow say in verse 8, if we have food and clothing, we will be content. How? How? If I'm, if I'm going to leave this world with nothing, how can I rest content now? And to answer this question, we need to remind ourselves of Paul's own confession to Timothy in the first part of this work. And uh, if you look, flip back to 1 Timothy chapter 1, it's on 991 in the Pew Bible. 1 Timothy chapter 1, 
verse 15, Paul says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as the example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul himself has been delivered, and a faithful Bible teacher teaches this deliverance. You have been set free. But to teach a message of deliverance, you also have to preach a message of bondage. Because you have to be rescued. If you're going to be delivered, you have to be delivered from something. So notice that in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul doesn't say, well, I was, you know, fairly reflective, I was religiously minded, and I, I thought carefully about the claims of Jesus, and I decided I'd give it a go. On the contrary, Paul says, I'm the chief of sinners. Jesus saved me because he wanted to show the world that he can rescue lawbreakers. And instead of sin and hell, Paul's life has mercy and eternal life written on it, all because of Jesus. And true gospel preachers then preach deliverance, but false teachers ferry people farther along the road to hell. So look back at 1 Timothy chapter 6. In verse 9, we see a terrible progression, or we could actually say a descent from desire to temptation to a snare, that is, a trap, and finally to ruin and destruction. Now, the snare in 1 Timothy, previously in chapter 3, verse 7, belongs to the devil himself. And I think the same is true here in chapter 6. Far from promised gain, which is what the false teachers hope for in verse 5, those that make money an idol find themselves plunged into Satan's trap and, and plunged into ruin and destruction. Now, this expression, ruin and destruction, can be taken together or it can be taken separately. If you take the phrase as one, ruin and destruction, then it evokes the, the imagery of shipwreck and drowning. If, however, it's ruin and destruction, then the phrase suggests ruin in this life and hell in the next. Now, there's reason to favor either one. Ruin and destruction by the sea would have been a familiar worry to anyone in the Mediterranean world. Ray Lawrence, in his book Roman Passions, remarks that in the first century, there was this explosion, an economic boom in metalworking. People got new drinking cups and dinner plates. They even got water pipes. And what evidence do we have of this vast trade in metal in the first century, what evidence do we have? Shipwrecks. Shipwrecks. We know that there was an explosion of metalworking in the first century because it ended up at the bottom of the sea. Ruin and destruction. Now, I actually think that uh, I prefer the um, ruin in this life and hell in the next, though. I think they're both plausible, but I lean towards 
ruin in this life and hell in the next. Here's why. Uh, when Jesus is talking in Matthew chapter 7 about entering through a narrow gate, because the gate is wide and easy that leads to destruction, he's using the same word. And he's not saying that broad is the road to financial ruin. He's not some kind of uh, life coach. He's saying it's easy to go to hell. Just keep on doing what you're doing. Paul uses the same word himself in Romans chapter 9 when he talks about vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Again, Paul has hell in mind here. Finally, in Philippians chapter 1, Paul contrasts the Philippian salvation with their opponent's destruction. Again, the same word. He's not saying the Philippians will be rich and their opponents will be poor. On the contrary, the next verse, uh, actually, he says to them, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Paul is saying, look, you may be poor in this life, and you may be persecuted, but you will go to heaven. Your opponents will go to hell. Now, there is a serious problem with false teachers. There's a serious problem, and we need to be aware of this as a church in our interaction with people. False teachers offer to unconverted people a message that appeals to what they already desire and affirms what they already believe. So people aren't ever struck with the need to repent. They're never hit with their reckless pursuit of riches and how it's leading them to hell. To play off the um, titles of a popular preacher, let me tell you, it's not your best life now. Because your citizenship is in heaven. Every day isn't Friday. Because we live in a fallen creation with thistles and thorns. It's not your time because your time belongs to Jesus. The prosperity gospel says God wants you to be rich in this life. That's what the prosperity gospel says. God wants you to be rich in this life. But look to the Lord Jesus. The Son of God himself was born in a manger. And most pressingly, the cross of Christ says, suffering now. Glory later. Suffering now. Glory later. As we close, I'll just remind you that uh, we just sang together, Be Thou My Vision. Uh, it's an ancient Irish poem that was translated into English by Mary Byrne and then versified by Eleanor Hull. And we sang, I'll just reread a little portion of that hymn to you. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart, high king of heaven, my treasure thou art. This hymn, easily written over a thousand years ago, captures poetically Paul's point. Do I need riches or honor? No. 
What, why? Because such things are not important? No, no, of course not. They are important. But where are my riches? With you, my God. You are my inheritance now and always. Where's my treasure? You, God, you are my treasure. The high king of heaven is first in my heart, him and him alone. And may God make this true for me and for you always and forever. Amen.